This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This is the 10th anniversary of the podcast. 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Louise Sandhaus about her macrobiotic past, about her new book on California design, and about her struggles to get the book published. I kept hearing the same thing. So this textbook... No, it's not a textbook. Here's Debbie Millman. Louise Sandhaus is a designer, an educator, and an author. As a designer, she has worked on everything from exhibitions to branding and web design, and she's the principal of her own firm. As an educator, she's been teaching design since 1990 and is the former director of the graphic design program at the California Institute of the Arts. As an author, she recently published Earthquakes, Mudslides, Fires, and Riots, California and Graphic Design, 1936 to 1986. It's a 416-page book featuring work by known and unknown California designers. She joins me now to talk about her book and her multifaceted career. Louise Sandhouse, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Louise, I understand that you grew up in Norwood, Massachusetts, but I would not have pegged you for a Northeaster. Really? <laughs> Absolutely not. I just, there's something so fundamentally Californian about you. Ah, that's very curious. I think it was in my heart of hearts, but I didn't know it for so many years. So, after living in Massachusetts, my family moved to Orlando, Florida. And that's where you went to college originally. Well, I went to small art school in Florida. And then finally, the big recession hit. I had a number of jobs and lost finally the second job. And so headed more north to Atlanta and then finally made my way to Boston via Birmingham, Alabama. And you worked for a small publisher in Boston in the 1980s. Which one? It was called East West Magazine. So it was one of those counterculture magazines. Okay. Uh, specializing in macrobiotics. I think it very shaped my way of thinking and my approach to life. In what way? It taught me a sense of balance, I think. You know, it was verging on the cult. You know? <laughs> so, you know, it was it was the alternative lifestyles of the 60s and 70s. That's what it really came out of. But I had this experience at some point of being macrobatic, maybe five years and working for this publication where I gradually moved up to art director. One day I walk into a fast food restaurant and like sit down in this daze at a counter and order a hamburger and a Coke. <laughs> I just remember after this diet fast of just brown rice, I just suddenly like woke up and went, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, this is like too weird. Did you end up getting sick after eating that, that food that you had stayed away from for so long? No, I was like so sick from like eating that food for so long, like the brown rice fasts. 
that I finally realized, oh my God, you know, this is like too extreme. So it was that moment that I realized, okay, balance and everything. And I think that's the thing that stuck with me. Like, don't go to one extreme or the other. You know, like, don't put your beliefs basket too far in one direction. You know, that you really have to sort that out. So in 1990, you left Boston for what you intended to be a brief stay in California as you were planning on going to grad school at Yale. But from what I understand, you were simply checking out the scene and were hoping to meet some of your heroes in the field, people like April Griman and Lorraine Wilde. What happened? You never left. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I went to meet with Lorraine Wilde. And the bizarre thing that happened was I think she misunderstood why I wanted to meet her. Like when I called her up, you know, I was interested in seeing her work in a studio. And she says, well, meet me at CalArts. And so I get there and she starts marching me around and I look around and I go, oh, my God, this is like the right place for me. Like in my mind, I had no idea about like CalArts or California. It wasn't a fantasy of mine. You know, I was really thinking Boston. And I had begun to teach. And so I knew that I had had this epiphany where I could see the handwriting on the wall, that culture was changing, that the way design was going to be practiced, that I could think of design as a critical practice. So I went to California, you know, there I am, you know, just biding my time until I went to Yale where I deferred for a year. And I get there and I'm like looking around. I went, oh, my God, Yale, wrong place. CalArts, right place. I could see it was going to feed my renegade persona, you know, that there was this aspect to me. And all I would have happened at Yale was I would have been indoctrinated, or at least that was my perception, because it was at that moment, they didn't know who they were going to hire to replace Alvin Eisenman. So I applied to CalArts. So by 1998, you were the co-director of the CalArts graphic design program and then became the program's sole director from 2004 to 2006. Right. So you, you came, you saw, you conquered. <laughs> you ended up running the joint. Yeah. You're a full professor there still. Um, what made you decide to step down from the director role? Well, first of all, I do want to mention that after CalArts, I did go to the Jan van Eyck in Holland. So I graduated from CalArts in 94. feel like I hadn't completed the work that I wanted to do, which was about graphic design education. And so went for two years and kind of did my own research and developed a symposium and did some writing while I was there. And it all happened kind of high speed through essentially the year of 1996. So I returned um, to the United States and am immediately offered a position at CalArts, at least teaching part-time. And then one day, surprise, surprise, I'm the co-program director, associate program director, and then move into becoming director and then end up sharing it with uh, Michael Worthington for a while and then go back to being the director myself. So it came a period (laughs) where I think I was not able to kind of cohere the faculty. I mean, it's really a challenge. It takes a very special persona to be in a situation where 
you're bringing together a shared vision. The director at CalArts is not a professional position. It's a rotating position where the faculty rotate. It's really kind of shared governance, as you say. And so I think my moment had exhausted, and I wanted to refine the kind of pleasures of the classroom. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people that are chairs of departments or deans of departments, and there's a real tangible difference between the administration and the actual teaching. Right. And and so many people end up missing that exposure with the students and that in-the-classroom time. Um, at CalArts, I read that you teach a class or you taught a class titled Cavorting with the Devils yeah. and then another titled Mutant Design. Yeah. What are those classes about? Well, the Mutant Design class I started teaching immediately when I returned to CalArts. And what's commonly understood now is the multiple roles that graphic designers take on, that it's hard to find the distinctions between writing, between designing, between thinking systematically. So all those categories were kind of breaking down. And I just couldn't find the creative limits. I really needed to conceive the whole thing in terms of the words and the and the systems and the design and the and the interaction and the experience, like it all came together. And I realized that there were certain areas of concern. Like early on in that class, we had a collaboration with Apple, which was uh, called the Apple Design Project. It was a project that ran a number of years and uh, different institutions, I think maybe there were 11 institutions across the world that were mentored by people from Apple. So that was a remarkable experience. So you were given a theme, for instance, the future of the book or the future of libraries. And so each team in other words, the different institutions will would tackle that subject. Then after spending a semester looking at that subject and having various meetings with your mentors, you would be flown to Cupertino to the headquarters of Apple, and you would have a several days to prepare a presentation where they had quite an impressive audience that would turn up to hear these ideas coming out of these different institutions. So, Louise, I'm really curious about the education that you got when you were in the Netherlands. You said that you were um, looking at the shifts that were coming in education. How have you seen that manifest? Well, now, for one thing, I realize it's eternally manifesting. Mm -hmm. So you can't say, what's the future of graphic design? It's always the future of graphic design. It's constantly shifting. Like the moment that you would say, oh, here's the situation now. And two minutes later, it's going to change. What's interesting for me to be aware of right now is how many genres or sub-disciplines have emerged. And they keep kind of like breaking apart and reconfiguring it's just become a discipline of many sorts of specializations to the point where they break off into their own fields, potentially becoming disciplines. So you founded your studio, your own studio, Louise Sandhouse Design, which you call LSD, which I love, in 1998. You refer to yourself as the proprietress on LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> how did you come up with that particular title? Or how did you choose that for yourself? 
I don't think I felt comfortable with owner. <laughs> founder. <laughs> Didn't like founder. President seemed too pretentious. So proprietors seemed to have the right level of comfort. So you curated an exhibition of California design at the Los Angeles Municipal Art Gallery titled Made in California. And in 2008, you co-curated the graphic design section of the California Design Biennial Action Reaction. Um, Is that when you first fell in love with California design? I would say that the love came when I was working on an exhibition, as an exhibition designer, I was hired by the L.A. County Museum of Art to participate in rethinking an approach to exhibition design. So I had, in my kind of renegade bravado way at a cocktail event, had approached the senior curator of contemporary art at LACMA and said, uh, I think, you know, there's a different way to think about exhibitions. I had at the time been doing interface and interaction design, and I really was thinking about the methodologies and approach and rationales of thinking about uh, user experiences. And I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, this applies to a kind of like physical experience. And I think I was in love with museums and kind of tired of reading the text on the wall. You know, it just seemed like I didn't know how to navigate these exhibitions. And I just felt like the engagement could be more fulfilling. And so in this moment of bravado said, "Ah, I think there should be this other way. And so the next thing I know, the phone rings and she says, okay, so we're working on this millennial exhibition, you know, like 50,000 square feet, which is essentially a whole museum. So she said, well, come on in here. This was about art in relation to popular images of California and how that evolved over a century. During that time, I was exposed to ways of thinking about California art, how those evolved over the century, and how they manifested. And there was just this moment, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't know that he exactly said this. Billy Al Bankston, the California artist, says, fuck New York, fuck Europe. We're going to figure out what art is. And I see at that moment this incredible independent spirit this idea that they did not have to follow what had been defined in other places, in other kinds of cultures as California art. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if this happened with graphic design. I just started to keep my eyes open, you know, and started to think about it. But it was when I saw a book that was designed by Merle Armitage, who's known in graphic design circles, but he started out as a music impresario. He was really an amateur graphic designer or book designer. He's also a PR agent. He absolutely was. And he had very strong independent ideas about how to promote the people who he was promoting, these musicians. And so he would do his own graphics. Then he saw that there were people like Martha Graham, and the photographer 
uh, Edward Weston and thought, oh, these people need to be known. So he arranged for publishing to be done, and he said, I know how to do these books. You know, and he was a modernist, but he had very strong ideas about the whole reading experience. So on the book that becomes the kind of bookend of this beginning of looking at California graphic design and what constitutes California graphic design was this book on Stravinsky. He starts the book on the cover, and it's followed by a hyperbole of eight images of Stravinsky, these portraits, like the celebrity portrait that had been shot by Edward Weston. I thought, wow, this is like, you know, like he couldn't make up his mind or, you know, (laughs) he really starts to like almost make this wink at the celebrity portrait. Like there's too many of them or, you know, he was trying to do something that was almost filmic, you know, that you see him transform over time. But it was really done very elegant way, very compelling. And Mm -hmm. you, you feature this in the book quite prominently. So let's talk about the book. It's a book all about West Coast design history, and it's called Earthquakes, Mudslides, Fires, and Riots, California and Graphic Design, 1936 to 1986. First, let's talk about the title, Why Earthquakes, Mudslides, Fires, and Riots. Oh, so many reasons. So one, it's cheeky. Two, it describes characteristics that are associated with California, you know, the distinctive kinds of characteristics. It's a kind of joke or stereotype. So there was kind of levity to the title. But it also speaks of these disruptions. And finally, like psychically, like what would it do psychically if you knew that the ground was not solid beneath you, that some kind of social or physical change might cause a rethinking or a shift at any moment? You say in the book, California has no terra firma. Earthquakes, mudslides, fires, and the occasional civil uprising cause incessant upheaval and change. So do you think that that impacts the way that graphic design has been practiced in California? I think that there was a sense of freedom. I think that it felt to many people who came there, especially early, it was a kind of backwater I think some people, especially the modernists who came out there, may have felt a bit anxious because the standards might have been coming from elsewhere. But then you have somebody like Alvin Lustig, who just had a strong sense of what being in California meant and the opportunities there and a lack of confinement and freedom. And the same thing happened with the Eames. They came there without the pressures of being defined by other sort of places and other demands and other strictures and definitions. Do you think that there are specific attributes to California design or the California design from 1936 to 1986? I've been trying to pin that down almost fearfully. There's a sense of a break from tradition or redefining tradition. I think that there's a kind of colorfulness. I think that there's a wit. I think that there's a kind of spirited amateurness. I think that they may have, in some cases, gotten it so wrong that they got it right. I think that there was a kind of vivacity and energy that allowed people to make it up and just have a strong sort of sense of what they were doing. I think that the 
counterculture, you know, kind of opened some some doors. You know, one of the cliches of California, certainly the psychedelic posters, you know, that drew attention, even though I don't think that those people thought of themselves as graphic designers. I think they were trying to celebrate something. And I think that they had certain skills to be able to do something. I want to read an excerpt from the book wherein you first described coming to California from Boston. When I first came to California in 1990, I was sure I had landed in some kind of promised land. I had just left a wintertime Boston, fresh from postmodernist and feminist studies, and with substantial experience as a graphic designer, first for a small magazine, then a corporate studio. In contrast to Beantown, California really seemed ruled and galvanized by griffin-riding Amazons. No kindly old gentlemen running the show. No sweethearts from the mouths of well-intentioned patriarchs who felt duty and honor-bound to help damsels they assumed could not only be in distress. I was stunned by an environment that, I had not witnessed it myself, would have seemed as improbable as Disney's Tomorrowland. Call it no patriarchy land. Here, gender didn't carry the same stigmas and assumptions, and this freedom from convention was also going on within graphic design. Rather than following the rules, designers in California seemed to be making them up. For women designers, this meant a double whammy, a perfect storm, a jelly roll of change. Once liberated from the conventions of the old misogynist social order, they were able to take the next step to unshackle themselves from the conventions of design. Such gorgeous writing, Louise. (laughs) Really, bravo. It's so vivid. It's so colorful. It has so much personality to it. It's it's almost as if you're giving people a tour of California as you take them through the book. Um, in your introduction, you compare the book to a dessert sampler. You write, each work was chosen based on little more than the way the heart quickens when the eye encounters something radiant, wonderful, and new. How does graphic design do that to a person? Because I felt that feeling too, and I've found it very hard to quantify. It is very hard to quantify. I mean, there's a certain kind of instinct. And one critic said, well, what's your criteria? You know, what kind of wacko criteria is that? But, you know, what we refuse to kind of acknowledge is that any scholar or historian or writer or somebody who just kind of edits or curates a body of material, that there's some sensibility or belief that they have that they can justify the choices that they made. And it's open to that. What I am interested in is those personal visions and that there's enough energy behind them and enough skill and talent that they're manifested in some incredible way that you feel that energy. It's permeating through that. And there's a sense of wonder at the capacity of what somebody has created. Now we're in a time of what Jeff Keady has coined global design, where everything looks okay. It looks good enough. It looks polished. It looks finished. And then you see these people who have these individual visions and have this energy and they have this passion. And that's, to me, what is interesting. 
that something can stand apart. You know, I believe that the whole approach to the design and the way in which the book is organized and the kinds of texts that are there and the kinds of voices also depict that idiosyncrasy, that strong point of view, and that desire to not measure it against what has been done as somehow being the correct or proper. You spent years researching, compiling, and organizing the content of this remarkable book. And in fact, in the introduction, you declare that the book took 10 years to create. How come? How come it took so long? Well, it took longer, but I, I'm scared to admit that. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a round it, off. It looks, it looks ridiculous, you know, to have spent that long. But it was, you know, it started with an inkling and then I started talking to people, you know, and you're sort of like you're, you're feeling around in the dark and you're not sure what it is that you're feeling and you're not sure what to go. Also, like finally, like putting it out there and trying to like, find a publisher for this, like, weird vision. Why was it so hard to find a publisher? This is a remarkable book. I think in the same way they just described, that it doesn't fit into something conventional. You know, of course, I understand the economics of book publishing, especially today, and so how they were going to be able to categorize it, publicize it, describe it, was, I think difficult for them. So I won't name names, but I think it was at five different publishers for fairly considerable periods of time. And then I kept hearing the same thing. So this textbook oh. on California graphic design, I'm like, no, it's not a textbook. You know, I'm, I really wanted to reach a wide audience. I thought that this work was informative as kind of artifacts of culture and as kind of like showing the importance of work that has this kind of energy that departs from what's already out there. It shows other ways of seeing and being was so important. During this, you know, 10 years or whatever, eight years that I was really trying to sell the book, I started with like, you know, a table of contents, you know, a sample chapter, you know, the kind of conventional things. And then it grew and it grew. This proposal just kept getting larger to where I think I ended up with a 120-page proposal. And finally, I'm like left there and people seemed unclear as to what this was. And I thought, that's it. I'm going to New York with a list of potential people who might be interested in this. And lo and behold, I think it was maybe four years ago, I am lucky enough to meet Diana Murphy, the co-publisher at Metropolis Books. And we sat down and she went through this proposal. She goes, yep, I get it. And it was a miraculous experience from that moment forward because I don't know from the horror stories that I hear about book publishing how often this kind of fortunate situation happens when somebody gets it. So the book is structured into four pieces, four different sections, sun-baked modernism, industry in the indies, 60s alt-60s, and California girls. Why those specific parts? Originally, I, I was thinking about 
numerous sections or themes. It seems like there were some that dominated and that were bodies of work that had what I would call important contributions to graphic design that may be distinctly emerging out of California. So was there work that I could locate and did I feel like impassioned enough about that material that I felt like I had something to tell? Those titles came out of an early brainstorm with Lorraine Wilde. I think her kind of voice and hand, you know, her kind of like charm and ability to analyze something and make it a tidy but elegant description is how those emerged. But on the cunning room floor were the publications were also the kind of fonts were two areas I was like painfully cutting out. So when I originally conceived the book, I even developed a dummy, like had this beautiful dummy made showing the back and front covers glued together so that you would get the sense that, oh, my God, this could be like endless. Like you could continue to glue on new volumes. Sort of like endless summer. <laughs> <laughs> so Lorraine's, Lorraine Wilde's essay for the 1960 chapter is all about the color orange. And I read that Lorraine started that essay on an impulse. How so? So in 1998, I believe it was, I got a grant from the city of Los Angeles. So they have these fellowships, these annual fellowships. And it funds a project by an artist or designer. It could be a performing artist or writer or visual artist. I had to make a work for the final outcome of this project. So I'm like, oh, but I'm writing a book, but it's, it's a work of graphic design. So it still sort of fit in there. I decided I really wanted to make the exhibition about the conception of the book. So I wanted to show some samples of these essays. And, you know, there was just a few weeks in there. And I said, no, no, we just need to spread, you know, <laughs> even one page. So for each of the writers, I said, just take a stab at it, you know, whatever. Just pick something, you know, that you'd like to talk about. And she just picked orange. Then we got to the point where the final essay needed to be developed, and it was like, oh, what was I thinking? You know, she wasn't sure, like, where to take it from that point. But I think it turned out beautifully, and there's a kind of richness, and it really shows how writing with one particular aspect in mind can really evolve and be a potent thread. Oh, absolutely. And and you can't help but realize as you're going through the book, even in its in your second go around as you reread it, how the threads of orange seem to be throughout in a lot of ways. And you write, when Wired magazine, which in turn became the pop culture voice of the Silicon Valley elite, at least in its early years, started publishing in 1993, one of the remarkable decisions by the founding designers, John Plunkett and Barbara Kerr, was to incorporate an expensive extra plate of ink in the printing of this new magazine dedicated to a technological revolution largely designed and marketed in California. And the extra plate used to print the stencil font masthead and the headlines inside was dedicated to what else? Fluorescent orange. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's the John Van Hammersfeld poster, Endless Summer, which for me really epitomizes everything right. about 
California, about the beach, about the freedom to just be who you are. Why has that poster persevered for so long in culture? I mean, in many ways, I think it's like the first viral poster. I just think there was something about a different conception of a Western frontier. It came out at a moment when youth was becoming a moment of departure from a past American culture to a future American culture. And somehow this beach and this color and the pleasure of the Western lifestyle was all embodied. You know, I think it came also at a moment when the post-war lifestyle, you know, outdoor barbecue, you know, poolside culture was still belonging to an older generation. And I think that that was the line in the sand to a kind of a new youth culture. No pun intended. No pun intended. (laughs) So in many ways, your book is a collection of extraordinary stories told through the lens of design. I think that's what makes it really different from just a design book or a book about California design. There are these really palpable, visceral stories that you tell using design as as a lens. You talk about Alvin Lustig's New Directions paperback covers from the 40s and 50s, Saul Bass's title sequence for Otto Preminger's The Man with the Golden Arm, Emery Douglas's Black Panther posters. You print some of the really lovely and very heartfelt birthday cards that Ray Eames made for her husband Charles, um, Deborah Sussman's remarkable work for the Eames and beyond, Stuart Brand's whole Earth catalog, all the work of Sister Corita Kent, who had renounced her vows to the Catholic Church over a conflict in beliefs, and then all of her remarkable work. How did you find all of this work? This is why the book really took so long. A lot of material that's published comes from collections. So I had to go on a kind of treasure hunt instinct, not really being sure what was out there or who produced it or who was a designer or who wasn't a designer but who was doing design who I considered worth thinking about or looking about through the lens of graphic design. It was a lot of like talking to people and networking and going to look at stuff. And it was interesting over the period of time, more and more material was digitized and could be found online. But a lot of it was talking to so-and-so who said, do you know about so-and-so and you should look at such and such. So it was an archaeological dig. It, it really was. Um, I want to talk about um, the women in the book. You declare that California design was a more hospitable place for women, fostering the careers of designers, including Margaret Larson for the department store, Joseph Magnin, and Susan Kerr for Apple. Frank Gehry invited Deborah Sussman and Gere Cavanaugh to share his office. That said, Deborah Sussman, who died recently, told you about how she had to assert herself in meetings and wasn't always taken seriously. It seems that the 
women in design in California have really forged a path for women all of the United States and abroad, I mean, all over the world. What gave women more of a sense of authorship or ownership in California versus the rest of the world? Because I really do see it as a place that helped pioneer how women are seen in graphic design. I think for one thing, I think it probably attracted some women who were independent spirits themselves, and they saw this as a kind of Western frontier. I think it didn't have the kind of competitiveness of someplace like New York. Compared to New York, it was kind of a backwater. So who would be watching them? Without the eyes of the world on them, I think they were free to carry out their own visions. Now, it was not a utopia, you know, <laughs> by by any means. All you have to do is watch Mad Men, <laughs> you know, with, when um, he comes to California. You know, you could see the way that women oh, are yeah, treated absolutely. out here. I don't think that was so far from the truth. But I think there was a kind of strength and endurance that they – developed here. So in 1986, April Griman shocked the world when Design Quarterly magazine published her nude self-portrait, full frontal, as a fold-out poster. Um, and in your book, you declare that April is your design heroine and state that her iconoclastic composition and typography shocked you into visual consciousness. I love that. How did you do that? Well, it was such a departure from anything that I'd seen before. I mean, I was pretty well into my career. And I think trying to understand who I was as a designer. So I saw a few things in her work. One, that everything had a kind of modality because it was made by hand. It had a certain look or a sort of style. You see the trace of the pencil or the collage or however it was, the airbrush, however it was made. And here was something that had developed a whole different aesthetic. And it wasn't trying to look like another medium. It was trying to look like what it was. And it was kind of shocking because in a way it was kind of ugly and yet there was a different sort of appeal, and I had to get used to it. But as I looked more closely, you know, the idea that she would literally put herself out there to talk about herself, number one, you know, wasn't done, and to talk about what mattered to her, which is a very different kind of world vision, you know, seeing the world and trying to make sense of it, not with a conventional, you know, phallic <laughs> logic, but with a very different kind of logic and trying to make connections, but not over-rationalize it. Like everything about that, the, the writing, the look of it, the way it had been made, that it was supposed to be a magazine, but it wasn't a magazine. Like all of that was a complete break and disruption. And that a woman had done that meant everything. It was interesting. I was talking recently with somebody about how often men, graphic designers, use themselves, whether it be their face or their body, in their work. 
work. And I remarked somewhat smugly that, well, you know, women don't wonder why women don't do that. And I was corrected. Well, April Griman did that in 1986. She really was the one that sort of broke through and started to use herself and her work in that kind of manner, that kind of raw, brutal way. You also designed this book, Louise. You not only wrote it, compiled all of the images, did all of the research, all everything. What was it like wearing both hats? Well, first of all, I mean, this goes back to the mutant design, that I really just couldn't separate these two modalities of telling the story. You know, I think as graphic designers often know, they're changing the nature of the content through the way they approach it typographically or through the design, through the pacing, all of that. I also wondered about if a graphic designer tells a story as a graphic designer, what happens to it? I had a lot of people working with me along the way. Jens Gelhard did the typeface for the book, CIA Compendium. Derek Schultz, who's now in New York, was enormous in his contribution to kind of setting the mode of the book where each spread was designed. Kat Katmuir did those incredible, incredible diagrams. And um, <laughs> the diagrams are wonderful. <laughs> yes, they were. They were, uh, I think, important. I kept going back to sort of <laughs> reference the journey that different designers took through other designers. It was really wonderful, sort of like a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel where you go back to the sort of family tree. Yeah, definitely a way of kind of like telling it really important and very difficult to work out in terms of the design. And then Tom Krakauer helped me with the design and a current student, Hayden Smith, who just has this wacky vision and we just like go exploring. So he was, he made a huge difference on the cover and did those end papers. Oh, the end papers are so good. Yeah. So my last question for you today is this. Um, is it true you're currently working with current and former students to build a wiki web style hub called Making History about continuing California design from 1986 forward? So it actually is continuing the project of California graphic design. After I finished the book, I knew it's like, oh, my God, you know, all this stuff that's like left. There's so much work to do. How is this ever going to get done? Then I attended a study day at LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. They had this study day in order to investigate collecting graphic design. And I think they have a particular interest in California graphic design. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, but how are they even to know about, like, what's out there? There's so much out there that I discovered was unknown, like people who were unknown or completely unrepresented or forgotten. And so what has to happen here? I thought, oh, the only way is crowdsourcing. Now, in Wikipedia, you have to be able to cite your sources. For much of this material, the sources cannot be cited. For one, there might be nothing written. Or the other thing is the design journals have not been cataloged. So you can't find that material. So that is the first thing that has to be done that has to be cataloged and indexed. And so many people, I think, are interested and able to do research on their own. So the Making History will give a repository. It will become a collection in and of itself. It will provide instruction for people to learn how to do research themselves and what resources they need to do that. And if people want to help you, how can they reach you? They <laughs> Right now, the site is at history.californiagraphicdesign, 
all one word, dot net. Or they can reach out to me at my email address. Great. Louise, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. And congratulations on this really important and beautiful book. You can find out more about Louise Sandhaus on her company's website, lsdstudio.net. That's lsd-studio.net. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.